Welcome to the second episode of a new podcast called Interview with a Pediapod. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and today we'll bring you part one of a two-part interview series with Dr. Jonathan Schinnaker from Vanderbilt. Your host will be Nick Fletcher from Emory, and part one today will cover stories about growing up in the Schinnaker household as a pediatric orthopedic legacy, becoming an investigator, including getting into some trouble in college, finding motivation outside of medicine, and some of Dr. Schinnaker's philosophies about surgical education. So, with no further ado, I'll hand things over to Nick, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello again. This is Nick Fletcher. I'm a pediatric orthopedist at Emory and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. I'd like to thank all of my supporters and the supporters of this concept, as well as Carter Clemens, who has been a real godsend for me as he has edited and assisted me along the way. Bob Cho for his unwavering support and all of the people who went ahead and listened to 45 minutes of discussion on our first podcast with Mike Vitale. Today is a really special podcast for me, and I'm excited to interview John Schenecker. John Schenecker is one of my oldest friends in orthopedics. We trained together. He was a resident one year ahead of me at Vanderbilt and was one of the real reasons that I chose to stay at Vanderbilt after going there for both undergrad and medical school. John and I have been friends now for like nearly 20 years, it feels like, and we probably talk at least once a week, if not more. John is probably one of the smartest people who I've ever met and who many of you have ever met, and his breadth of knowledge in both orthopedics, basic science, as well as many other areas in life is just staggering. As I mentioned during the podcast, he seems to have a number of hours in the day and days in the week that I just don't have to complete the work that he does, and he's incredibly efficient. There are numerous stories about him doing things like building additions on his house during residency that are really unbelievable. And I think that his work in the lab where he ran a lab as a fellow and actually has managed to get published in journals like Cancer is truly spectacular. And he's clearly a leader in the field and his work in both basics and translational science. But his ability to evaluate problems in orthopedics, ask the right questions is really unparalleled. I think that probably one of the things that John gets most credit for and all of which is well-deserved are his talks of probably the top 10 talks that I have seen in orthopedics at conferences. He owns 90% of them, if not more. His talks are just unbelievable. He will do a eight-minute talk with 350 slides. He will never seem like he's rushed, and his talks seem as though they are done with some sort of stop-motion cinematography. John comes from a tremendous pediatric orthopedic pedigree, as the son of not only a very storied pediatric orthopedist, but a president of our National Society and a thought leader in his own right. That being said, you would never know this from meeting John. He's incredibly humble and a lot of fun to talk to. He's probably somebody who I look forward to seeing most at national meetings, and I enjoy his family as well. So please enjoy and listen to this wide-ranging discussion of everything from education to research to skiing and everything in between. Thank you very much for listening again. This is Nick Fletcher, and I'm here today with my good friend John Schenecker. 
as I mentioned in the lead in, John and I have known each other for nearly 15 or 16 years now, and we talk probably once a week. So this just happens to be the first one that we've actually recorded. But John, thanks for doing this today. This is going to be a lot of fun and I appreciate you making the time for it. Well, I appreciate it, Nick. I think this is a great thing you're doing and it's going to be a great thing for the positive community. Well, good. Well, we'll get into it. So, you know, I think that I've known you for a while, like I said, and I've got to know your family as well. But, you know, you had a little bit of a unique upbringing, at least in the world of pediatric orthopedics, because you come from a family where your father was not only a pediatric orthopedist, but sort of a giant in the field. What was growing up in the Schenecker household like? (laughs) Uh, It was fun. You know, as most people know, Perry is one of the hardest working people that you know, and there were definitely ups and downs of it in terms of his time commitment that he had to wash you in the shrine. And so there were aspects of it that times that I might notice here and there that he might have missed a soccer game or two, but he made such an effort to try to be there for both my brother and I, as well as my mom, that it still was a great childhood. I enjoyed that. I think the hardest point was at one point around our age now, he was acting chairman, residency director, and chief of staff at the Shrine All-in-One. And you just thinking about how much time that takes now, in hindsight, I realized uh, why he was working so hard. But I enjoyed it. I definitely learned my work ethic from him. And also, in obviously, uh, going into pediatric orthopedics, I definitely saw the good in what he did and definitely didn't hold him against how many times he was away. So that's terrific. I was going to sort of ask how, you know, how he shaped your career, but I think that's pretty obvious. I am shit about that comment you made. I mean, you know, do you look at his life when you were growing up and sort of use it at all to shape how you set your priorities and set your schedule at work, given these constraints that we have? And we'll get into it a little bit later with regards to work-life balance. But, you know, does that come into play at all, do you think? Oh, for sure. I think that probably... The In my life, in my career, I've gone in and out of an understanding of his work ethic. And I think that the biggest thing that I took away from it when I left going off to college was that I didn't want to be consumed in my perception of what he was doing by work as much. And I even told that to him when I left for Middlebury. I looked at him and said, I just need to let you know there's no way I'm going to be a doctor. <laughs> And uh, he he loves telling that one what happened. And I think what changed for me by far was when I got off to college, I was friends with many people whose dads worked as much as Perry did, and it was in different sectors. And the one thing that I noticed is is that I, I never really saw anybody who I think was deeply as marriage the idea of being intrinsically and extrinsically motivated at the same time, you know, meaning that the things he did day in and day out, he probably would do regardless of what the incentives were. He enjoyed them so much that being taking care of patients and teaching in particular. And for me, I think that that aspect of it, that general principle of making sure that you love what you do, which again is that idea of marrying extrinsic and intrinsic motivations, is probably the biggest thing I got out of watching him growing up. 
I can tell you for sure, just like I said, I told him I wasn't going to be a doctor going off to colleges. I didn't understand it then. But now that I see that the guy's 78 years old and is just as motivated today to do what he does day in and day out as he was when I was growing up with him, is just that I think that that's what I tr- really try to mold my career off of is, is I try to be very conscious about making decisions of things I say yes to in that they're going to be something that I will love to do even if I'm not getting an extrinsic motivation award, either, you know, a big carrot with, you know, something financial or such as that, but much more a deep down in my heart, I really enjoyed doing it. I think that that was probably the best part about growing up with him and seeing how much he enjoyed what he did. Yeah. I mean, his enthusiasm is pretty contagious and certainly, you know, you tend to echo it pretty closely. So I remember, I mean, like I said, I've I've known you long enough and I've spent enough time with your parents that I've got a number of sort of fun stories that I can think of, like helping him edit his uh, iPods talks at one or two in the morning. I remember doing I, a couple of times. I don't, I don't wish that upon my worst enemy. <laughs> but do you have any like really great Perry stories? There's the classic that is told, and I don't know if it's true about him mowing the lawn with a headlamp at 11 at night, but do you have any great stories that you would be willing to share, especially given the fact that your dad may sometime listen to this thing? Oh, of course. I, you know, his, uh, as much as I just said that his idea of extrinsic and intrinsic, the way he lives his life, there's times where I don't really know if he's acutely aware of that philosophy. And where that came out so often with my brother and I growing up was I think he was trying to teach us a work ethic by leaving chores for us to do. And one of my brother's favorite stories would be we'd come down in the summer and he would make up these math sheets that he and I would need to sit down and do. But then it would say something like weed for two hours. <laughs> and I mean, oh my gosh, we'd look at each other. And, I, and, and in his mind, he was teaching us you know, work ethic. In our minds, we're like, you've got to be kidding me. And uh, I also remember there was um, in lines of that, of that work ethic aspect, this is that my brother and I wanted, I think it was the, the new Atari uh, had come out and my brother and I went to him and asked if we could get it. He said, sure, that would, that's a great idea. Here's the chore list of the things that you need to do in order to earn that Atari. And looking back at it now, I think that my brother and I could have probably purchased about 10 Ataris for the <laughs> amount of work that he had us do. And that was just who, and that's how he is. And it's fun for me to hear stories from residents who have worked with him that, you know, he is that guy who it's six o'clock, seven o'clock at night and, you know, everybody's ready to go home. And he says, oh, no, no, game, we've got a great, great couple of presentations we can go through real quick. And next thing you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. But, you know, those were the big things growing up with him that just my brother and I found absolutely, in hindsight, hysterical, is just that the amount of those type of chores he would give us. So your your mom is obviously... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. How in the world did she manage the energy in the Schenecker household? I've met your brother a couple times, but I don't know him quite as well. But I mean, just between you and your dad, I can only imagine. But if you throw a third in it, it must have been crazy. Yeah, I think that everybody who knows them would agree he needs to never retire uh, for my mom's sanity. You know, having him home all the time, all that energy trying to put someplace else would probably drive her absolutely crazy. You know, the thing for me growing up, I definitely inherited his energy and his desire to always be doing something. And my parents told me that growing up, if I hadn't kept good grades, they probably would have put me on a triple dose of Ritalin. My mom did say, though, that, and I remember this, where it came from, this is that 
the thing is, is for me, it was pretty easy for them because I was always curious about, especially electronics and tinkering with things. And they would say they could go drop me off at a dump when I was a little kid. And I'd be like, I was at Disney World. And so, you know, the nice thing was, is that she was really good at directing both my brother and I towards things that were good for us developmentally, socially, as well as in terms of, you know, our curiosity. Both of us grew up in a big, we both love sports. That was our big social outlet, especially with development of friends and how to work on a team. And so we were always busy doing something like that, as well as in terms of education, we were lucky and went to a school that really allowed you to develop your own curiosities. And and I did a lot of science camps and fun things like that. So she was good at directing us. And I think that that really helped out. That's terrific. You you had a business during high school, right? It wasn't during high school. It was in college. And it was, you know, I went off to Middlebury, which I absolutely loved. And it was right at the time of when satellite TVs and, you know, things were coming out. And my roommate and I, who, uh, Josh Bruskell, a great guy who's a vet now, he and I both, the first semester, like most people in college, went to a lot of the parties, et cetera. But both of us really liked, we had that same mentality that we could live in a dump and be happy. And we really had fun in college with broadening our horizons a bit in terms of the things we would do in our off time. And so we'd play in the physics lab with all the equipment and Then we started getting into doing things for other people that involved anything tech or carpentry. We both loved building things. And so we started off by splicing cable. And so we we thought we were, you know, these agents going through the air ducts and stuff. And we crawl throughout all the dorms and we splice cable to all the rooms. And then we got caught. And and I nearly (laughs) did it. Yeah, it was great because, you know, Middlebury, being Middlebury that it is, I had friends who had been caught smoking pot probably 10 times and they didn't have to say anything on their med school application. And they made me on my med school application write a letter explaining why I was caught stealing cable, which actually helped me get into med school because a whole bunch of the interviews, they would ask me about it and they thought it was pretty ingenious the way that we did it, just not getting caught. But then anyways, after we got caught, we realized that we should probably do this in a way that seemed at least a little bit more legal. So we started a company that we did construction And so we built lofts in rooms and made sure that the college approved it. And then from the money that we made from that, we started an entertainment business where we bought a RCA satellite, a laser disc player that had karaoke. And we then wired all of the dorms. And so we had a broadcasting company that we would play whatever was on the RCA satellite. And that was fun because all 250 rooms in the dorm had to watch whatever we were watching. (laughs) They had no choice. But then what was even more fun is is we would turn the karaoke on at night, especially on Saturday nights. And so people would come by our room and sing and it would broadcast throughout the entire dorm. And so it was a fun business. And then we moved into storage and it really grew from there. We had a great time doing that. It really Everything that I just explained about my mom saying putting me on Ritalin, if I didn't ha- if I didn't have that in college, I probably would have been in much more trouble than just splicing cable. Yeah. A, do you still have the laser disc player? And B, did you ever contemplate maybe not going into medicine and pursuing 
Tell me that arena because it sounds like you were <laughs> successful. I can't I, imagine what I was doing during those years. Oh my gosh, you know me. I'm still considering that. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that part of it. Uh, so much of what I'm doing now in terms of medical education and what we're doing with you know just the electronic, the digital media aspect of it still stems from that. I think growing up, the main thing I would say is, is looking back at it. I think it was Jim Casser who told me this. This is to always try to think of two or three people that you think you would want to be like, and that it's helpful for those people to be outside of medicine because it helps you understand your intrinsic motivation. And I can tell you, me, all along, it's always been somebody like Elon Musk, maybe not as much of a jerk, but or J.J. Abrams or Steven Spielberg. So, you know, that idea of being a pioneer in terms of innovation, but then also at the same time, the aspect of teaching of that, you know, really creating that digital media that just grabs people and telling a story that just, you know, grabs onto and you don't, never want to look away. That's always been the center of who I've been. I don't know if I knew that then, but, you know, definitely during that time uh, at Middlebury, that's where all of that came from. And I definitely thought about going into other areas of science that the innovations could be on a much grander scale. I loved, I always wanted to be an astronaut, no matter what, that was what I was going to be growing up when I saw the movie, The Right Stuff. I looked at my parents and said, that's going to be me. And there's still a part of me that loves that. So that definitely has always been a driver for me in my life. And uh, having outlets for it, I think is probably the most important thing. So Middlebury is sort of an interesting call. I mean, you grew up in the Midwest, and I love Middlebury. It's one of my favorite places, and and I think most of the reason I wanted to go there originally is because they had their own ski mountain. But it's it wasn't. I mean, it's well known for its sort of humanities, and not as well thought of, I think, for the science. Although I may be wrong there. Sort of, what made you choose going up there other than the ski mountain? So. You know, the ski mountain was the main reason. <laughs> so you and I are very For being honest. Yeah, yeah. It's almost impossible to go. I, I've always loved the outdoors. I mean, probably some of my favorite memories of Perry growing up is just that he always would take a ski. And just sitting on the, the conversations I had with him and still have on a ski lift, as you know, are some of the best conversations in the world you could have with anybody. And just being out in the middle of nature with everything quiet, riding along and then skiing down and, you know, having that physical challenge, it was so amazing. And when I went out to Middlebury and realized that it was far more than just the skiing aspect, but being up in the mountains and having the trail running and the, I went up and spent a night there looking at it and realized that 90% of the people at Middlebury are the same people. This is that they absolutely love going off and doing something outdoors and they were very motivated by that for sure was one of the biggest draws for me. I definitely also was a school that I went to, I think really pushed a liberal arts curriculum. I think that they really wanted everybody to be well-rounded and I really enjoyed that. Some of my favorite classes at Middlebury were by far some of the things outside of science. One of my favorite ones was the philosophy and literature of Star Trek. That was such a great class. Did you teach it? <laughs> no. I didn't, but we did have our final project was to make a documentary. And my, as you can imagine, my roommate, Josh Brunswell, who I, we did the, all the companies together, he and I went all out on that. I mean, we had sound effects. We had things all flying in. It was great. We had a good time. But that was one of the big draws of Middlebury. It was just mostly that you were around like-minded people. And it made it so that it was very easy for the things that you were motivated about to find somebody to share that with. I think that that's probably the most beautiful thing we have in pediatric orthopedics and why 
you and I love hanging out with each other is that you, you often will sit there and talk about things that you do at work. And in your mind, it's not talking about work. It's talking about something that you're so passionate about. You want to spend every second of the day trying to figure out the puzzle and doing that with the same type of people is just so much fun. And that's what I really saw in Middlebury and, and still I'm really thrilled that I did that. It's something right now for me, my you know son is a senior and he's looking into colleges. And I think that that's one of the main things that both Susan and I have such a hope for is, is, is that in the process of him figuring out what and who he wants to be is, is that he's able just to have the same fortune that she and I did in college in particular, being around a group of people that help you develop that in a very positive way. Absolutely. And then you went on to Duke, which is obviously a great school in sort of a little bit, again, different direction. Was there a reason you picked Duke? And you took the research track. Was that the plan all along? No. So actually, I didn't. I, so when I looked at the med schools, Duke was actually an afterthought. And then when I went and visited, and the, by far the main thing that drew me to it was I was thinking about doing an STP. And in talks with Perry, I decided not to. Um, I actually was not an STP when I applied. And the reason why I liked Duke is much of the reason why we have worked so hard at changing the medical school curriculum here at Vanderbilt, where you went now, to much more emulate what Duke is. And that is, is that the opportunity to develop something that you're intrinsically motivated about is second to none at Duke. Vanderbilt's almost there. The dean of the med school is listening to this. They'll probably get on my case for saying that. But they have a very unique curriculum that they started in the 70s that you do the first two years of books in the first year. The second year, you're in the clinical rotations. And then your third year, they really want you to do whatever you want to do. So many people in our class got an MPH. Many people got an MBA. Some did JD. And for the most part, though, most people went into the lab and they really focused on working with somebody in the field that they thought that they wanted to go into. And it was during that time that I really was turned on to science and realized that I wanted to be a part of my career. And for, the fortune for me was is that there was somebody who dropped out of the MSTP program, and so I took their spot. As an opportunity cost, it was one of the dumbest moves I've ever made because I paid for the first two and a half years of Duke Medical School tuition. Sorry about that, Susan. And, you know, if I had known that before, I would have signed up for it. But, but also the other part that I think was huge with Duke was when it came to it, this is a little funny part, is, you know, you could only hold three acceptances at any time. And do you remember that? that yeah. The way it yeah, went yeah. Med school. And one of the things that happened for me is, and this was at first very contentious with Perry. He had the hardest time biting his lip about it. This is that one of my best friends, Jason Dimmick, who is a ophthalmologist now, who's a downhill skier at Middlebury and absolutely incredible. He and I were very close and he convinced me to defer from med school, which you can imagine telling Perry that was... Yeah difficult. And when he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to go with Jason and a couple of friends and we're going to go live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming for the year. <laughs> and I, he was very good. He bit his tongue, but he stared at me. And I think there were no words that could come out that could express what he was actually feeling about it. it was and, you, you could talk about now. Yeah, right. And so what was uh, fun is, is at the time, I when I decided I was going to do that, I was holding three acceptances and Duke was one of them. And I wrote a letter 
to all three admissions dean and asked for a deferment. And to be honest with you, Duke was the, the admissions dean wrote back to me and said, I think this is a fantastic idea. Give me your address and I'll come out and ski with you. <laughs> and I mean, right then and there, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this place is absolutely amazing. And it was, looking back at it, it was the best move I ever made for so many reasons. So it was an amazing year. It really helped me be convinced that I wanted to dedicate myself to an occupation that I would be in love with. You know, I got to work out with just a normal job, if you will, and had a great time with friends. And then the biggest part of it is where I met Susan. And, you know, there's no way, and you know how much of a geek I am, there's no way that somebody would fall in love with me in med school. I mean, this was, I was cool. I was out there working as a personal trainer and I was, we go skiing all the time, hiking all the time. I was a lot of fun. And so it's no surprise that when I got to Duke, I asked her to marry me pretty quick after we got there before she really had a chance to figure out who I really was. That's great. That's great. And and it was fun too, because one thing about Perry is, is that his, everybody always wonders if Perry actually has a hobby considering how hard he works. And the one is that he's always loved too is ski. He always has absolutely loved ski. And I think he would say that he, if there were a regret about Sally for him, the only regret is that she hates skiing. He likes spending money in the villages and, you know, ski villages, but definitely does not like skiing. And so when he came out and skied with me, it was about probably February or March. I remember um, Susan grew up in Vermont and she's just an absolutely incredible skier, just beautiful. And we were skiing and I remember we were riding one of the chairlifts up and he was very quiet. About halfway up, she was in front of us. He looks over at me and said, okay, I understand the year was worth it. (laughs) And it was fantastic. And so that's always been something that, you know, that year I think is something that if you could wish that upon anybody, I think it's probably one of the best ways to go about it is to get into medical school and then find a way to defer so that you don't feel like that you're being evaluated and go off and just do whatever you can during that time. I think it's just the best thing in the world. Absolutely. I mean, uh, that's a terrific story. And, you know, I think one of the regrets I have is is not doing that. My brother took sort of a year and lived in Australia. And I was definitely jealous for 11 of the 12 months because the first month I thought, this is sort of stupid. And then when he would send pictures and tell stories. You, you realize how, how remarkable an opportunity that is. So so the PhD came about and you fell in love with serine kinases and things like that. But, you know, was, <laughs> but medicine was obviously still sort of the way for you. It's a little bit of a unique situation to have an orthopedist with a big part in basic science. And obviously with your dad being there, that probably made a big impact on you. But was that always the plan? I mean, once you sort of went down that road, was the plan to do pediatric orthopedics and to build basic science into it? Or were you sort of trying to figure out which way it was going to take you? No. So, you know, going back to it, I think that I was so lucky to be at Duke at the time that I was. Probably the the biggest two people that influenced me in terms of who I am now are my thesis advisor, Jeff Lawson, who's a vascular surgeon, and then Jim Urbanek, who was, you know, the chair at the time of orthopedics at Duke, very famous hand surgeon who really pioneered the prefibular graft for avascular necrosis. And I remember the time that I was trying to figure out if I wanted to stick in the lab and pursue the PhD came down to seeing Jeff and seeing the fact that he integrated almost everything he did surgically into the lab. So I just fell in love with the idea that he'd come back from a vascular surgery and say X, Y, and Z failed. 
there's no way clinical medicine is going to be able to figure this out. There's too many variables and we don't have a big enough end. And therefore, we need to figure out how to do this in the lab to answer this question. And that philosophy is what I still carry with me now is just that I always tell everybody in the lab that everything that we do needs to be a two-sentence explanation to our patients so that they understand why we're doing what we're doing. This is so that the answers of what we could figure out in the lab could go directly to translating to a new clinical practice. And that you need to do it in a way that you couldn't have answered it with just clinical research. And Jeff really instilled that into me. And then the aspect in terms of orthopedics, I was pretty certain I wanted to do orthopedics, but still was thinking of, in particular, thoracic uh, transplant that was very big at Duke at the time. And the labs that I was surrounded by were that. But Urbanics lab was right next to us. And I ran into him in the hallway one time, and it was much like the scene out of the movie The Graduate when Dustin Hoffman's family friend comes up to him when he's sitting there trying to figure out what he wants to do in his career. And he looks at him and he just says, plastics. Yep. And Urbanic, I, I mean, I can remember this so vividly. He just looked at me and said, you know, Schenker, what are you thinking these days? And I said, well, you know, I'm really enjoying my time in the lab. Obviously, orthopedics is a big deal. And he said, so what are you interested in? And I said, well, you know, the big thing we're studying in here that I love is coagulation. And he just looks at me and starts laughing. And he said, I said, what's that? He said, well, I can tell you right now is that really all orthopedics is vascularity and coagulation. And, you know, the thing is, is that now, 20 years after he told me that, I can't even begin to tell you how right he was. We have our our R01, our DOD grant, almost every grant I've had has been on the role of coagulation proteases in bone biology. And it's a wide open field with unbelievable implications. And it's been fun for me because OREF had me come back at one of the champions breakfasts and I got to give a talk about exactly that moment and they had Jim Urbana come back. And I showed what we've done. And I mean, the best way to put it is that most disease conditions from, you know, fracture healing to heterotopic ossification to osteoporosis to infection, everything has a huge root in coagulation and how the coagulation enzymes regulate vascularity in the field that we work in. And then once we started seeing that there were developmental aspects as well, it really, you know, made it so that it's it's not hard for us to translate the things we're doing in the lab into pediatric orthopedics. In terms of going into pediatric orthopedics, I didn't think that there was, just like I told Perry when I went off to Middlebury College and said I wasn't going to be a doctor, when I decided I was going to be orthopedics, I told them there was no way I was going to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. It shows how good my insight is into myself. And as you know, when we were at Vanderbilt, you know, you really didn't get exposed to pediatric orthopedics until your third year. Other than the fact that, and I still love giving the residents at Vanderbilt, you know, this speech that back in the day, you know, when you and I took call there, we had to do our own spicas in the ER and for femur fractures. And, you know, the thing is, is that the second year, you had a hatred towards pediatric orthopedics because if you were getting killed and you got three spikes over there, your whole entire day was done. And, you know, and once I was a third year resident and rotated with uh, Greg Mencio and Neil Green, I had a dawning about halfway through my rotation that I really had absolutely no idea what Perry did. As I, I had no clue that he was what he did day in and day out in terms of his clinical practice. And 
I really fell in love with it during that rotation. And that was when I really decided to make it a career. Yeah, I think if it hadn't been for Manson Green, most people would come would never have gone into Peds ha- having gone through the first year as a resident at Vanderbilt. No. It's a tough time. So, I mean, obviously Vanderbilt worked out terrific. Not only are you there now, but you know, you had a great residency. That's where, where we met. You know, why Vanderbilt? And I've always been sort of curious how you approached residency. I'm fascinated in how our own residents approach residency. I think that they do it differently. And, you know, I've started to try to get in with them early to help sort of guide them because I think there are a lot of different philosophies that they come in with. But how did you approach uh, Vanderbilt and how did you approach your residency? I wish I could tell you that I had this insight when I was looking into residency. I definitely had the intuition that this is what it was. But, you know, to become an expert in anything, which is the fundamental root of education, especially if something that requires cognitive learning and psychomotor training, which is what we do. I mean, if you really think about it, all we are is pattern recognition and how to fix a pattern is that the one of my favorite authors, he didn't come up with this, but he loves to talk about it. Malcolm Gladwell is the concept that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in anything. And you know, the aspect of it for us when we go into it in orthopedic training, what's fun is if you really break out what we do, 10,000 hours or 10 years, if you take medical school at four years and then residency with a fellowship at six years, it's just worked out that way that it's 10 years of training before we are let go to be on our own. And the part that is super scary looking back at it now is this, residency and fellowship is just luck that you get 10,000 hours in the right place. It's and really high, amazing if you think about that. It's deliberate practice while you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you, especially my favorite thing to go back, and I do think he actually was a great educator, but for you and I, where one of the things that's such a negative to those 10,000 hours right now is business. Yep. And just as we used to joke around all the time, what did Kurt Spindler always say when we were in the operating room with him? Right. About you got... He'd always just say, you guys are costing me money. Yep. And I mean, he would say it tongue in cheek, but he was, if you look at it, he's absolutely right. Yep. Especially on a busy sports service where there's not nearly as much inpatient practice that the resident really contributes. Having a resident switch over every six weeks to 10 weeks and have to retrain in today's business world of RBU-based medicine and hospitals getting efficient ORs, there's a negative to that. And so the luck aspect of it boils down to picking a place in which, A, the pathology exists for you to be able to experience as many cases as possible, see as many people do it as possible, and have mentors who are actually willing to take the time, even though they don't have any extrinsic motivation to give you that time. You know, we don't compensate well for education. And with that, you know, when I looked around, I whether there's good and bad aspects of it, growing up in a vascular lab at uh, Duke, it was still in the Saviston days. And it was still the place where they would say, you know, the problem with every other night call is just that you miss half the cases. Yeah. I loved it. I mean, I found that that it's like the book of Extreme Ownership. I mean, it really made it so that you are accountable for every second of every part of your own education and patient care. And I found that incredibly motivating. 
And so when I started looking for residencies, at first everybody thought I should be looking for a place that had lots of research so that I could do research during residency. And Perry was great about that. He said, all right, you've done your PhD. You know how to do research. Now you need to become a surgeon because if you're not a good surgeon, nobody's going to listen to your research. And if you're not a good researcher, you know, nobody's going to care, (laughs) you know? And, and, And so that's where he really, really pushed me. And as I was rotating around, the irony of it is, is that going to Wash U on an away rotation was how I came to Vanderbilt. And that was, you probably remember, uh, yeah. Chris Gladys and Tom Dovan. They were fellows in hand and spine at Wash U. And I didn't know that at the time, but I went into the OR with them. And I thought that they were like five, six-year attendings at least. They were so competent. And they were great people. And I really just fell in love with them. I just wanted to be them. And as talking with them, they said, well, there's only one place you should go, and that's Vanderbilt. And as I talked to my dad about it, I mean, he said that too. He said, you know, we get fellows from Vanderbilt all the time, and we essentially try to hire every single one of them because they are so competent. And I think for you and I, we both fell in love with that. We knew it was going to be hard. We knew the green way was very difficult. Green came from Duke, men's came from Duke, and it was instilled there at Vanderbilt. I thought that Vanderbilt's surgical training program was much like Duke's. I didn't think that it was nearly as uh, socially as harsh. You know, you didn't have residency classes in general surgery that 120% divorce rate as they did back in the 70s and 80s. But I, I just fell in love with that idea of being accountable for that, as well as more importantly, having mentors that were more than willing to put the time into teaching. Because Vanderbilt doesn't have that many fellows, as you and I know, it was great because it really was a mentorship. We learned from our chief resident and we learned from our attending. And you were one-on-one with them at almost all times. And it made it so you were very accountable for making sure that you knew everything, but also that your skills, your psychomotor component were progressing. And, you know, we have taken a look at this since I've been on faculty at the competency of our residents and Back in the days before really stringent 80-hour work weeks, as you remember, is that at Vanderbilt, I mean, my gosh, you did at least over 100 femoral nails in your career there. And that ended up accounting to about right around 2,400 to 2,500 cases between second year and your chief year. And they weren't cases that you were just watching. You are deeply, deeply involved in. And in terms of education now, that's what I tell all of the med students who work with us is just that there is no substitute for that aspect of medicine, of getting your cognitive and your psychomotor training in real time in patient care and not just from a textbook or reading about a technique. Um, it makes it so that you are so confident to take things to the next level. So when you get the fellowship, you just want to become that much more of an expert. So Absolutely. And I always tell our residents that, you know, you're not going to develop that in practice. So it's important that especially the things that you will see regularly or that you will most likely see regularly, femoral nails are a perfect example. You need to be adept at at managing them when you're done with your practice, because if you get, or excuse me, with your residency, because when you get into practice, if you're not comfortable with something like that, you won't do it. And then you yeah, lose a major skill and it will, it really pigeonholes people, I think, into areas where they can only manage a couple of things. And obviously it's one of the great things of 
pediatric orthopedics is the last bastion of general surgery. I mean, we operate throughout the entire body. And, you know, other than sort of the people who focus in one way or the other, you have the opportunity to really do a little bit of everything as long as you're taking trauma call. Uh, Boy, Nick, that's, that is such a good point. And the thing is, is that I think that that's really come alive in terms of the first couple of years of practice. That's the best advice for anybody. You and I've talked about this so many times is that you don't want to be that person that makes the mistake of saying, you know, I'm going to go out and do chip chop cases for a year or two so that I can, you know, just get my practice going and take my boards and get through that. And then I'll start adding the hard cases. It doesn't work that way. No. Almost anybody who says that never ends up elevating the, you know, how hard of a case they take on. And, you know, and that's when people ask me about a job in terms of looking for it, you have to know yourself as, as to whether or not you want that to be part of your practice. And if you do, you need to make absolutely certain that you go to a place where those cases are available for you to do, and most importantly, do them safely, meaning that you have a continued mentorship beyond fellowship with great people. I mean, for me, as you know, starting off, you know, I was doing PAOs, and the thing I always found funny is, is just that if I ever was worried, you just call Greg Mencio. You know, I mean, even though Greg Mencio hadn't done a PAO before, his experience of operating around the pelvis and the spine and was so amazing that he would come in and he could figure anything out. And I think that that understanding that when you're done with fellowship, this is you're really not done and making sure that you set yourself up in a practice that you have that continued mentorship where people will come in and help you out and taking on the hard cases from the very get-go in a safe way is the most important part to really push yourself to be the best that you can be. Absolutely. So I want to follow along those lines for a sec. So, you know, we get asked a lot, obviously, as in our roles within our residencies and with as educators, how do I become a good resident? Or, or what are the things that cause a somebody to be an unsuccessful resident? And so I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Do you have a, a tip or two that you give people regularly? I do. And I, you know, the thing is, is that I think there's an aspect of things that you can coach, and there's an aspect of things that you can't coach. And I think that probably the most important thing to understand is that when we look for residents here, or when I talk with my med students about who is a good resident, it's a very simple personality aspect that is not teachable, that just exists. And that's integrity and curiosity. And, you know, the integrity aspect of that equation is, is you won't lie, you won't cheat, you won't quit. And that is that book, Extreme Ownership. I mean, that's what that comes down to is, is that, you know, many people who people like to joke that orthopedics attracts a lot of people who are athletes. Well, one reason being is, is that being a good teammate means that you have a lot of integrity. This is that you won't buy, you won't cheat, you won't quit. And then the curiosity aspect of this really comes down to the part that what we do is so unbelievably hard time-wise. And it's during one of the most critical parts of your personal development as a family, meaning that there are you're in your 20s. If you are you know, just getting married and just having kids, there's so many wonderful draws away from the book, wonderful draws away from really diving in and you know, really knowing something backwards and forwards. And if you don't have that innate curiosity to what orthopedics is and what we get to do in it, you're not going to be a good resident because you're not going to spend that extra time outside of the time that you're working, making sure that you get your 10,000 hours. And I think the first part about being a good resident in orthopedics is just to make sure that orthopedics is what you want. And one of the things Perry lamented about was at one point, 
they had received a letter from one of the deans saying at WashU, we need to be nicer to our third and fourth year residents who rotate on our surgical services. You know, don't have them stick around on call. Don't have them, you know, don't wear them out. We're going to lose people going into surgery. And his point, which I could not agree with more, is, is that that's the best way to make it so that people drop out of residency. Right. Is, is that they need, you, you need away rotations, you need home rotations that are true acting internships, that you need to know that it is a tough sport to do. And um, they need to experience that so that they're positive that when push comes to shove, they will maintain that integrity and curiosity. It's easy as a medical student, for example, to show integrity and curiosity now because med school realistically is not hard time-wise in terms of overnight call, et cetera. But what we love is, is when our med students come here and rotate is towards the end of the rotation, that's when you check and see whether or not they'll continue to have that integrity and curiosity when they're actually a little bit tired. And it's the same as a resident is is that it's very important to realize that maintaining integrity and curiosity during your residency is the most important thing to do. And one thing is, is that within a residency program, if you're seeing that even the best of the best are starting to lose some of their integrity and curiosity, that's where the residency program really needs to look inside itself and make sure that they don't have it structured wrong. Because, you know, taking people who are both extrinsically and intrinsically motivated and putting them into a situation where they can succeed, if they're not succeeding, you have to make sure the machine isn't broke. Absolutely. So I think that's a, there's a lot to sort of unpack in there, but I, I think a lot of it boils down to our ability to evaluate and lead both our students and our residents. I'm sort of curious, you know, I think it's easy when you've got a resident and you've got a five-year history or five-year future, I should say, with them. You know, they come in green, they all want to work hard and they all have sort of the right thoughts at the beginning. You know, on a personal level, how do you find that you best evaluate students who are going to succeed at that process? Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the things that we struggle with, probably as you guys <laughs> do most commonly, is why is it that we, that despite the fact that we put in hours and hours of time I'm talking and interviewing and reading CVs and all that kind of stuff, that we still have residents who struggle along the way. And what can we do to improve our accuracy during the selection process? Yeah. So in terms of the selection process, you know, the integrity and curiosity is a difficult thing to measure, if you think about that, is how do you quantify integrity and curiosity? And for me, what I talk to our medical students about in terms of their application is, is that realize that the biggest opportunity um, is to have good letters. And one of the most important things for us in orthopedics is to realize that the people that we select to stay in orthopedics is how we continue orthopedics as a natural resource in this country. And that when we sit down to write letters for students, it should not be a, oh crap, I have to get this letter done. It should be something that you go and ask as many people who have worked with that student as you possibly can and really make sure that your letter covers that aspect as as to whether or not this is the resident that you want on call for you seeing that posterior lateral avascular supracondylar at two in the morning with 10 other consults. And that's what I really try to focus on in terms of what I 
coach our, re- our medical students on going through this is, is that's what they need. And when they're looking for letters, it's not just to look for some famous person who might say, I met this guy for two hours in the operating room and he was nice and didn't get a question mark. What you want is, is somebody who's willing to go to bat for you to say, again, this is that guy you want in the trenches. And then again, more importantly, is that realize that our biggest opportunity right now to make sure we're picking the right people is for all of us to really pay attention to those letters and make absolutely certain that we put a lot of effort into them. You know, one of the best examples where this goes wrong on it, if you, if you think about it, is Dr. Death. If anybody's listened to that podcast, the idea that a neurosurgery resident can go through doing only 100 cases in their seven years of training and that the chair writes a glowing letter for a job, everybody asks, how did this happen? Well, it's one of those things where we have to be true as mentors to look through and realize that, you know, criticism is very important. You know, critical feedback and giving feedback to medical students and to residents that, you know, especially if they ever hit the problem of lying, cheating or quitting, is you have to jump on top of that. And uh, the only way we're going to really improve this process in terms of both the selection and making sure that we maintain integrity within our own profession is, is that we're all very honest about that and comment on it. Yeah, no, I think that that's one of the most challenging things when you write a letter and you're not wholeheartedly behind the applicant. It's, you know, it can be a difficult task and think that it is critical that people are thoughtful in the way that they write the letters and structure the letters. But also, I think your point on doing research before you write the letters is just as important. Yeah, I always ask, I go and ask uh, as many of the residents who have worked with a medical student as possible when I write my letter. That's the first thing I do is, is I have, I tell the medical students they're required to give me an annotated CV and they have to go through their CV, CV and explain the things that why they did things and what they meant to them. And then on top of that, they have to give me a list of residents that they've worked with. And mostly in orthopedics, they can be outside of orthopedics. You can learn just as much from them. And then I contact those residents and talk with them about that student. Uh, the other thing in terms of what you just said on the letter, I think it's very important that we get better at calling the people who write the letters. I always put my email or phone number at the end of the letter and say, if you want to talk about this applicant, give me a call. And I think you'll find that so much, so many of us are so much more honest on that communication than we are on that letter. And I think as a residency director, it's important once you get your list part down is to actually look into those references and ask. I agree. Well, that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed it. In our next episode, we'll bring you part two of this conversation, which will include some reasons that basic science research is awesome, how Dr. Schinnaker thinks we'll use fancy technology to better train our residents in the future, some tips for putting together really cool PowerPoint talks, and some reading recommendations, which I know I plan to capitalize on. We hope you'll join us for that next time.